you to turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. Last week I spent some time with you really just sharing the heart of the leadership of our church in the formation of these small group, uh, the small group meetings, which started this week, by the way, and uh, I hope many of you, I got reports from a few of them that uh, they went really well, and I'm looking forward to see what God's going to do as we meet together and share together and, uh, and continue on with these meetings. Hopefully it will provide an opportunity to do some of the things that we're talking about right now and what the Word of God tells us. Uh, this morning's message is not going to be so much an explanation like last week, but more of an exposition of this passage in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, and particularly verses 22 to 25. Salvation is, I think, often portrayed by pastors, teachers, those who are witnessing as a very personal, individual thing between you and God. Uh, Much of our evangelism uh, is focused on the individual, for an individual to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as we heard Mark speaking this morning, that's his goal, is to have individuals uh, exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and become born again. But salvation is not just an individual thing. That is very far from the truth. And I think that our society, uh, our culture, the way that we have presented the gospel lends itself to the idea that it's just you and God. And that's really all that matters. Your salvation, your sanctification, as long as you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, you're reading, you're praying, you're, you know, that's what really matters. But, but that's not the whole truth. When a person comes to Christ... God places you into a group. He places you into a body. And your salvation was never meant to be just an individual thing between you and God. My salvation was never meant just to be an individual. It's not going to be in heaven, just you and God. We will be with the company of all those who have believed throughout the ages. And even now in this life, we were not meant to live on our own just not the case. The New Testament is so clear about this. And what I'd like to do is to expand on that this morning and and explain a little bit more from this passage in Hebrews chapter 10 why this is so. I'd like to propose that our salvation was never intended to be just a private session between us and God, but that God intended from the very beginning of his work in our lives to bring us into a family, a body, a group of people to whom we would belong and who would belong to us. This was his design. This was his idea. And as we mentioned last week, if you were here, we took a look at three things. Uh, We took a look at Acts chapter 2. I think it was in the late 30s uh, into the early 40s of verses and took a look at what the early church did, what they were involved with, how they were connected together and, and how they interacted. Uh, We also took a look at the illustrations that are given to us in the New Testament of the church as a body, a household, a building, and a temple. And hopefully came away with the idea that um, while we are individuals, we need to be connected as a whole. Uh, And we also looked at the commands that are given to the church in the New Testament, a lot of them, 
using the one another terminology, love one another, serve one another, minister to one another, help one another, encourage one another, and so forth. And, and there were many, many in that list where we need to be involved in each other's lives in order for that to happen. And so last week was sort of a, an explanation of why we're starting these small groups, and it was basically to give us as a church an opportunity to do these things, to give us a fighting chance of being able to, to fulfill God's design in our lives individually as a church, uh, because it just can't happen on Sunday. What I'd like to do this morning is to take a look specifically at Hebrews 10, and I'm going to read the passage to you this morning. And as I, as I read through, I'd like you to note first the plural references in here. Since therefore, brethren, not brother, brethren, we, not you, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for you, no, for us, through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled with a clean Uh, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near." And so even at a first initial reading of this, you can see the intent of the author was this was intended for the church. This was intended for all of us. And the individual parts of this which relate to us relate to the whole. Our salvation is not just our salvation. It's it's our salvation. It's not just mine. God is not just my God. He's our God together. And you can look at those words. Brethren, we, we, us, our, our, and all the plurals that go along with it. So what I'm trying to get at this morning and what I would like to do over the next 15 or 20 minutes with you is to show that every individual who's been saved by the blood of Christ has a responsibility to every other individual who has been saved by the blood of Christ and in particular to those in the local church to whom they belong. Let me say that one more time because this is the whole point. Every individual who has been saved by the blood of Christ has a responsibility to every other individual who has been saved by the blood of Christ, particularly to those in the local church to whom they belong, which means that I have a responsibility to you and you have a responsibility to me. It's a God-given responsibility that we must work at. It's God's design and it's why we're here. If you look at the construction of this passage, it starts with the word since, therefore. And this is setting up an idea that if this is true, then it follows that this must also be true. Uh, I forget what that's called in logic. Is it a soliloquy? Syllogism. Thank you, Mr. Grammar Expert. If, this is, if A is true and B is true, then C must also be true. And that's it's sort of an argument that the writer of Hebrews is setting up here where he says, Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Christ. And, we ha- and what is he saying here? What is the since? Well, it's our salvation. Look at what he says. 
What the sense is, is what God has done for us. And what has he done according to these verses? He's made us brothers and sisters. Since therefore, brethren, he made you a brother. He made you a sister because of what he's done. He's given us confidence to enter into his presence. Look at the middle of the verse. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. We have direct access to God through Jesus Christ. We have access to him through prayer. And we will have direct access to him in our death as well when we, are, when we meet him face to face. What else has he done? He's provided a new and living way. We are not saved by the works of the law. We are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and exercising faith in that. He shed his blood as a covering for our sin. He gave his body as a sacrifice uh, on the cross. And this allows us to enter through the veil into the presence of God directly. This is a privilege that God has given to you and me as an individual. He has given us a high priest, somebody to stand between you and God, somebody who has the answers uh, when you are asked questions of God, you know, the simple ones, why should, why should I allow you into heaven? Jesus will answer, I paid for his sin. Um, we have a, a priest who prays for us, who intercedes for us, who ministers to us, Jesus Christ. And we could, we could really expand on these things this morning, but that's the sense. Since, therefore, we have these things, then it follows that something else should take place. And what is the something else? It's verses 22 to 25. And there are three main thoughts in here. They all begin with the phrase, let us. Since we have been saved, let us do this. Since Christ is our high priest, let us do this. Since he has opened the way to God, then let us do this. These are the things that we should be involved with and the things that should drive us, should motivate us as believers in Christ. These are not individual responsibilities. They're corporate responsibilities that we need to be doing with one another. What are they? Number one, if you're taking notes, we're to worship together. We're doing that this morning. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Secondly, we are to profess together. I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. And thirdly, we are to minister together together to one another. We are to worship together, we are to profess together, and we are to minister together. So let's take a look at these. Verse 22 is the first one, and it's the phrase, let us draw near. Uh, Let us draw near. Draw near means to move from one place to another. It means to go to. And this, in this case, it's not that we are to draw near to one another, but rather to draw near together to God. And so it's directly, it's talking about worship. It's talking about us drawing uh, near to God as a group. And this is the heart of worship. When we meet, we are to approach God directly. And I hope as we go through our morning services on Sundays that you get that sense, at least we try to, uh, to say it out loud that we're here to worship God, that we sing to God, that we give to God, that we preach about God, and everything is about him. And that's what, that's what we're about this morning. And so as we gather together, I hope there's a sense of unity in that way, that we're all here for the same thing. Um, and this is not only a command, but really it's a privilege for you and I to be able to do this with God. Um, it was not the case always in history. Um, people could not come directly to God. They had to go through the priest, through the temple, and so forth. But God has given us direct access to him, and therefore, let us draw near. Let us do it together. 
Um, there's four thoughts attached to this, and I'd like to read them to you and then briefly explain what they are. Verse 22, let us draw near. The first thought is with a sincere heart. Second thought, in full assurance of faith. Third thought, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And fourth thought, having our bodies washed with pure water. As we approach God, as a congregation of people who have been redeemed, we need to do so with a sincere heart. There are some people in life you know are insincere. Sincere, uh, the idea of sincerity means to not be false, to not come under uh, pretense, to not be hypocritical. And I hope that's the case with all of us. And as we approach God as a congregation, I hope that we don't approach him under, under wrong terms, under false pretenses, but that we approach him with a heart that's been cleansed and is sincere in its, in its desire to want to see him, to want to praise him, to want to understand him better and so forth. Um, talks about our heart, our heart being sincere. We know all through the scriptures this is the case that God was always interested in the heart of men, not just the outward appearance. We know that uh, as David was being called to be the king and and God was talking to Saul, uh, David was not exactly the physical specimen that everybody was looking for in a king, but what was God's um, conclusion about David? God does not look on the outward appearance. He looks on on the heart. Same thing was true of Saul when he gave Saul that command to go and destroy the Amalekites, and he didn't. He said at the end of that passage that it's better to obey than it is to sacrifice. God was more concerned about his heart. Jesus, when he came uh, to offer the kingdom to Israel in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, over and over and over again said, you've heard that it's been said by them of old, thou shalt or thou shalt not. And he brings a lot of the commands into his sermon. Thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you, he who hates his brother shall be in danger of judgment. And why is, what was he talking about? It wasn't just the outward act, but it was the inside that God was concerned about. And so as a congregation, as we come Sunday after Sunday, God is concerned about our heart, that our hearts would be sincere. And if God expects the congregation, Fellowship Bible Church, this church, if he expects this church to come to him, with a sincere heart, what does that say about you as an individual and me as an individual? We have a responsibility, don't we? We have an individual responsibility, but it's connected to the whole, the whole group. Because if I come with an insincere heart, what is that going to do? It's going to affect the whole group, no question. The second thought, as we worship together, not only with a sincere heart, but in full assurance of faith. In full assurance of faith. I'd like you to keep your finger there and turn back to uh, chapter 3, verse 6. The writer of Hebrews used this a couple of times in this book. Verses 5 and 6 of chapter 3, it says, Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later, but Christ was faithful as a son. So he's comparing Moses and Christ in this passage and showing the superiority of Christ, which is really the theme of the book of Hebrews. So Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. That's the same word. So as we come to Christ, 
uh, we understand that we can be and should be confident in our faith. We understand that the things that the Bible says are true, and we can stand and say those things and believe those things and rest on those things with confidence that in the end, they will be so. Um, Back to chapter 10, in the verse that we read earlier, in verse 19, since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter into the holy place. How can we have that confidence? Not on our own strength, but because of what Christ has done for us. We can approach God directly with confidence, boldly. And so he uses this idea of confidence in our worship to God. As a congregation, he says, let us draw near to God with confidence, with assurance. If God expects the congregation to come to him with assurance, how does God expect me to come to him? So my heart and my understanding of God's word and how confident I am in it affects everybody else. It's my responsibility to be confident in my own faith so that as I come together with you, we can be confident in our faith. So with a sincere heart, with assurance or confidence, um, I will say this too. One thing that I recognized when I first came to Christ, I was 14 years old when I got saved, but as we began to attend churches that preached the gospel and were uh, what I would call true New Testament churches, uh, where people were truly redeemed by the blood of Christ, one of the things I noticed, and you probably noticed, that these people were confident in their faith, and it had an impact on me. As I listened to people and they just boldly proclaimed, Jesus Christ is the way, I was saved by the blood of Christ, and these, these direct, bold statements, that it had an impact on my way of thinking. These people were confident, and I think that's true of us as a testimony in a church. When we are confident in what we say, and we have assurance of our faith, it does certainly have an impact on those around us. And there are many things that fight against that, aren't there? Satan is involved, no question about that. Uh, does he want you to be confident in your faith? No. He wants you to stumble and fall. He walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he he may devour. And uh, you remember the parable that Jesus gave in Matthew 13 at the very beginning, the parable of the sower. The sower went out to sow seed in his field, and the seed fell on four different locations, right? Some fell by the wayside, some fell on rocky places, some fell in thorny places, and some on good ground. And as Jesus was explaining that parable to his disciples, what did he say the seed was. The seed was the word of God. Who was the sower? The sower was the son of man as he was sowing the word of God. Um, What were the various grounds? They were the people who were listening to the word of God. And the first one, as the seed fell on the road, that hard packed surface, what happened to that seed? It not only didn't grow, but what happened to it? The birds came and ate it. And who did Jesus say the birds were? It was the evil one, Satan himself. Is Satan actively involved in keeping the word of God from penetrating into the hearts of people? Absolutely. And so there are things in life that are going to try to to wreck our confidence, and Satan is one of them. Our flesh gets in the way. I'll tell you, and I'm open with this, there are days I get up and my flesh makes me wonder if all of this is really real. Maybe I'm the only one. Maybe that doesn't happen to you, but sure, I doubt from time to time. And my own flesh, as I look at 
the world around me, as I listen to the philosophies of the world around me, as I think about the, the, I don't know, the irritation of even thinking about people in hell, that all of that just, my flesh wants to say, no, this isn't all true. And so Satan gets in the way, my flesh gets in the way, circumstances of life can get in the way, right? When things don't go the way that we think they're going to go, we often will first blame God. Well, if God really saved me, then why is this happening? And the circumstances themselves can get in the way. But none of these things change God, do they? God is who he is. He doesn't change. It doesn't change what God has done in our life, no matter what Satan says, no matter what our flesh makes us think. And no matter what our circumstances are, the truth is the truth, and it doesn't go away. If God be for us, who can be against us? Who can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Shall any of these things? No, they can't. And so it's our responsibility to come to the congregation to worship God in full assurance, in confidence. It has an impact on people. And if God expects the congregation to have full assurance, he also expects that of me. Third thought about worship, having our hearts sprinkled clean. This was the work of God when we were first saved. When we came to God, we're just like Mark said, we were that dirty shirt. We have nothing to offer. We may have tried, like the person with the clean shirt, to do good works and to to be good and all of this, but there's always that black stain at the bottom that will never go away. And when we try to wash it, it only makes it worse. It spreads around. All of our good works are as filthy rags. When we came to Christ and believed in him, what did he do? He washed us through the regeneration of the Spirit. He made us clean. He washed the sin away. And ultimately, when we're glorified, there will be no more sin there. Not only is this the work of the Spirit when we were saved, but it's the work of the Spirit every day of our lives. We still struggle. We still sin. We still have that nature and those tendencies, and yet the Spirit of God continually is cleaning us and making us clean before God, and it's part of his ministry. So having our hearts sprinkled clean has to do with our sanctification and our growth as a believer. God does this on a regular basis with us as we read, as we pray, as we draw close to him. We grow, right? And if God expects the congregation, again, go back, this is let us, this is how we are to approach God. We as a congregation are to approach God with a heart that's been sprinkled clean by him. So what does that mean about me as an individual? I need to approach God with you with a heart that's been sprinkled clean to make sure of my own salvation, to be sure that I am uh, reading his word and allowing the spirit of God to have that cleansing Uh, ministry in my life. Fourth one is related to the having the heart sprinkled clean, but it moves on to the body, having our bodies washed with pure water. There are some who would who think that this reference is a reference to baptism. I don't. I think it really probably refers more to the Old Testament ritualistic washing of the priest as they would wash their bodies with water um, and sprinkle the blood on the altar signifying cleansing and again, has to do with being clean rather than being identified with Christ in this case. But the imagery is pretty clear, isn't it? If the inside is clean, what's the outside going to be? Or what should it be? If it's going to be 
you, you don't want to have an incongruency. You don't want to have one clean and not the other. It doesn't make sense. If your heart's been cleaned with Christ, why would the outside be unclean? And so again, talking about our sanctification and our life, a clean life is what he's, what he's dealing with. If God expects the congregation to worship him with a clean life, to approach him with our bodies having been washed, and you can picture that imagery, what does he expect of me? I hope you're starting to see the connection between corporate life and your individual walk with God. It's not just you and God. You have an impact on everybody else by these things. Your sincerity, your assurance of faith, your sanctification as God is cleansing you on the inside, and your life as God is cleansing you on the outside all have an impact as we come to God together. This is what he wants us to do. Let us draw near. Second one is in verse 23, where he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Confession is what we believe. It's what we confess. It's what we say we believe. It's what comes out of our mouth. It's what we teach. All right? To hold fast just means to hold on to it tightly, to not let it go, to be secure, to keep possession of it, There's so many illustrations we could go to here. We live in a world that is crazy about security and safety. Crazy. There's not much that you can do in our society today in America where some regulation or other is not going to bump into your life that the federal government or state government or school or some other organization has imposed upon you to try to stay safe. We are are safety crazy in our world today. Manufacturers have regulation after regulation after regulation about how they need to make things so that they won't break, so that they won't, so nobody will swallow something too small, so nobody will do this, that, or the other thing. Uh, Construction workers, every day it seems there are more and more constraints put upon construction workers about what they can and can't do in your house. Even me as a homeowner, I'm not allowed to do certain things because the town says, no, you can't. It's not safe to do it this way. And we have to follow these regulations. Parents are concerned about the safety of their children. Schools about the safety of their students. Uh, We're concerned about the safety of our valued possessions. So we have alarms on our house, alarms on our car, bars on our windows to keep people out who want to come in and steal what we have. Let me ask you this. What is of greater value than your salvation? What is of greater value than knowing that you have hope for your soul into eternity? Nothing. And so the writer of Hebrews says, hold that fast. Don't let it go. Protect it. Keep it safe. Our confession is what we believe. It's what we believe about God, his person, the Trinity, the nature and the work of Jesus Christ, the inerrancy of the Bible, the infallibility of God's word, the truth surrounding salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. It's what we teach. It's what we proclaim together. And the command here is for us, all of us together, to hold that fast, to keep it. Every time we meet, to talk about it to know it and to know it well, to, billing, to be willing to work on it and to speak it out, 
I'm amazed, you know, as I've grown up in Christian churches, how little time people spend talking about those things and how much time we talk about the Patriots and the weather or any other subject that we happen to be. And I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about these other things. Sure, we should. As we get to know each other, it's, it's great to know different things and to share common interests and things. But as we get together as brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to hold fast this confession because if we don't, it's gone. And if we don't, the church will fall apart. We have to hold on to these things. These are non-negotiables. And he says to do this without wavering. To waver means to lean to one direction or to lean in the other direction. And if you have a, you have a structure that's leaning, what's going to happen to it? My wife and I had the privilege of going to Italy a few years ago, and we saw the leaning tower. We were right there. And the time that we visited it, it was closed. They weren't letting people go up. And it's actually, if you look, it's amazing when you look at it, how far it's over, but it hasn't fallen. But while we were there, they were propping it up. They had these giant holes that they had dug into the foundation of the structure and these big hoses that were probably four inches around and they were injecting concrete down into the ground to make sure that it didn't because it still is actually leaning more each year by I forget how much, a half an inch or whatever it is, you know. But they didn't want it to fall because it's a national treasure and so they were shoring it up. But if a structure leans too far, goes beyond that point of of gravity, down it goes. We know this. The foundation has to be level. And if the building is leaning, it's going to fall. What does that mean? This means that we shouldn't lean. We shouldn't incline as a church in our understanding of our profession. This is what he's saying. Hold fast your profession without wavering, without leaning. And there are plenty of places uh, and plenty of ideas that are floating around in this world that will cause us to lean and one direction or another. So be careful. Don't get hooked into ideas that are going to pull us away from the central truths of our faith. Be careful not to get hooked into ideas that even come from the Christian community that are not biblically rooted. Those things are going to cause us to lean in one direction or the other and ultimately will fall. So if the God expects the congregation to not lean, right, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, What does he expect of me as an individual in that congregation? And he caps off that verse by saying, he who promised is faithful. It's all directed toward God. We need to understand and trust in or be confident in the trustworthiness of God. So let us draw near. Let us worship together. Let us hold fast our profession. Let us profess what we believe together. And then the third one, and we'll close here, verse 24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another unto love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. I titled that minister to one another, and there's some pretty pointed ways that we're going to do this. Um, But the the main uh, command here, the main verb is consider. Let's consider, consider. What is it? To consider simply means to be attentive to, to fix your eyes upon something, uh, to perceive it, to understand it. And in this case, what are we supposed to consider? Not Christ and not his word. 
one another. Right? Let us consider how to stimulate one another. This is a direct command for our interaction with each other. The word stimulate, as we consider one another, how to stimulate, the word stimulate is most often used in a negative sense to mean to provoke. Has anybody ever provoked you? Have you ever had an itch in your nose and the sneeze is almost there but not quite and you're just, you know, you want to get rid of it one way or the other or you have an itch on your foot and it just won't go away and you're trying not to scratch it and then finally you just have to. Or a pebble in your shoe. You can only walk so far. Those are all stimulants. They're irritations. They're things that cause us to move into action to, to do something. And this is the same word, only it's used in a positive sense. We are to consider, we are to focus on each other and to think about how we can be that irritant in each other's lives. Not that I want to irritate you, per se, but how can I motivate you to do what? To love. We are to be that sneeze with each other. We are to be that itch in each other's lives, that little pebble in the shoe that's, that's motivating us uh, to action. So the question is, how can I be effective in causing someone else to love? Well, I can be an example of it by loving myself. I can verbally encourage you to love. I can rebuke you when you're not loving. I can put myself into a situation where I accept and receive the love that you have to offer rather than rejecting it. Those are some ways that I can stimulate you to love. Are we considering that? Are we focused on that? Is that what we're about? What else? We're to stimulate one another to love and to good works. Same question. How can I be effective in causing you to be involved in good works? How can I stimulate that? I can do it by example, by doing good works myself. I can verbally encourage you, just like, it's the same thing. By example, by verbal encouragement, by rebuke, or by putting myself in a situation where I receive good works from you. And all of that will be an interaction with you that would stimulate you to do the same thing. This is what we're called to do as a congregation. And there's a double result here. If I neglect stimulating you to love and good works, it impacts me negatively, and it impacts you negatively. But if I'm faithful in this, it impacts me positively, and it impacts you positively as we, as we do this. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And then the last participle here, not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit is of some. To forsake means to abandon, means to let it go. You know, we talked last week about the responsibilities of us as a church. How do you put a time frame on this? Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. We have regular meetings uh, that we do here at the church right now. We're going to meet again tonight at 6 o'clock. We're going to meet Wednesday at 7 o'clock for prayer. We have the small group meetings uh, established. How often should we meet? Big question, huh? How often should we meet? 
I'll say this. I need to meet often enough that I can fulfill my biblical obligation to you. I don't know how often that is. Am I worshiping with you? Am I involved enough in your life that I know you and I'm able to minister to you? Do I know how to pray for you? Do I know what's going on in your life so that I can? Am I able to serve you by exercising my gifts toward you? I can say this, I know it's got to be more than Sunday. Because as I mentioned last week, meeting now, once a week, in this format, is necessary, but it is not enough to fulfill these obligations that we have as a congregation to each other. Can't happen. Impossible. And so, yep, I'm talking to you. If you're here once a week on a Sunday morning and that's it, I don't know how you can fulfill your responsibility without being connected or involved or in contact with believers on a regular basis during the week. How does it happen? We have to be. He closes by saying encouraging one another. That means coming alongside somebody who needs help and giving that help. Giving verbal help, giving advice, giving counsel, coming alongside to talk, to strengthen, and this should be happening all the time. And if God expects this of the congregation, then he expects it of me. And this is my responsibility to the church. So what are they? In regards to worship, to make sure my heart is sincere, to make sure that my confidence in Jesus Christ is full, that my assurance level is up there, to be sure that my heart is clean, has been cleansed by the Spirit, and that my life is clean as I come to worship with you. In regards to my confession, my profession of faith, what I believe, I need to hold fast to my theology and not let it waver, to not lean to one side or the other, to not let rogue ideas come in and sway me away from the principles of God's word and to rest in the trustworthiness of God and what he says. In regards to ministry, it's my responsibility to stimulate you to love. It's my responsibility to stimulate you to good works. It's my responsibility to meet regularly enough with you so that I can minister to you and to encourage you and to come alongside. How are we doing? How are you doing? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for giving us instruction. I pray, Lord, as we hear it, that it would not fall on deaf ears. Help us not to just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. And Lord, as we have opportunity to grow, I pray that we would take those opportunities to use these times of instruction and teaching in our lives to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for salvation and all that you have done in opening the way for us to have our sins forgiven, to opening the door so that we can boldly approach you. And Lord, because of this, Help us as a congregation to fulfill our responsibilities to each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.